Section 53 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 53. The Kingdom of Italy, under Odoacer and Theodoric, by Maurice Dumoulin. On the 27th of February, 493, through the good offices of John Bishop of Ravenna, who acted as official intermediary and negotiated the terms of the treaty, an agreement was concluded between Odoacer and Theodoric. It was arranged that the two kings should share the government of Italy and should dwell together as brothers and consuls in the same palace at Ravenna. Odoacer, as a pledge of good faith, handed over his son, Thela, to Theodoric. And on the 5th of March, the latter made his state entry into Ravenna. Theodoric broke the agreement by an act of the basest treachery. A few days later, he invited Odoacer, his son, his chief officers, to a banquet in that part of the palace known as the Laritum. At the end of the feast, Theodoric rose, threw himself on Odoacer, and slew him together with his son. The chief officers of Theodoric's army followed his example and massacred the Rugian leaders in the banqueting hall, while in the interior of the palace and as far as the outskirts of Ravenna, the Gothic soldiery attacked the soldiery of Odoacer. It was clear that all acted on orders from headquarters. Theodoric had now no rival in Italy. He was not, however, equally successful in his attempts to obtain recognition as king by the emperor. He had already, during the first year of the siege of Ravenna, dispatched Festus to Constantinople, hoping that his position as chief of the senate would favor the success of his mission. On the completion of his conquest, Festus having in the meantime failed, Theodoric sent a fresh envoy, Faustus Niger. The second enterprise was, however, no less abortive than the first. The anonymous Velesi tells us, indeed, that peace having been made, had Theodoric then in the eyes of the emperor been guilty of disobedience? Anastasius sent back the royal insignia which Odoacer had forwarded to Constantinople. Nowhere, however, do we find it stated that the emperor had authorized Theodoric to assume them. In a letter written to Justinian to beg for his friendship, Athalaric records the benefits conferred by the court of Byzantium on his ancestors. He mentions adoption and the consulate, and in referring to the question of government, he merely recalls that his grandfather had been invested in Italy with the toga palmata, the ceremonial robe of clarissimi of consuls who triumphed. However that may be, Theodoric took that which was not conferred upon him. He abandoned military dress and assumed the royal mantle in his capacity of governor of the Goths and the Romans. But officially, he was not any more than Odoacer had been king of Italy. Even his panegyrist Enodius, who styles him our lord the king, refers to the Italians as his subjects, accepts him as lord of Italy and de facto imperator, and speaks of him as clothed with the imperialis auctoritas, nowhere calls him king of Italy or king of the Romans. He was at once a Gothic king and a Roman official. Jordanus has called him quasi goturum romanorumque gobernator. 
We have proof of this double position in the two letters which he wrote to Anastasius, and which are quoted by Cassiodorus. In the first, Theodoric expresses to the emperor the respect which he feels for the latter's counsels, and especially for the advice which he had given him to show favor to the senate. If he uses the word regnum, a word which may also mean nothing more than government, it is to tell the emperor that his object is to imitate the latter system of governing. In the second letter, his tone is that of a lieutenant who begs his superior officer to approve the choice of a consul. It is the tone neither of a rebel, on the one hand, nor of an independent sovereign on the other. As the anonymous Velesi saw very clearly, Theodoric made no attempt to found a new state. He ruled two nations together without seeking to blend them, to allow one to absorb the other, or to make either subordinate. The Goths retained their own rights, their own laws, and their own officials. The Italians continued to be governed as they had been in the past, and the rule of Theodoric offers us the spectacle of a government purely Roman in character. The Goths had established themselves almost imperceptibly in Italy. As their king had been careful to maintain continuity of government, and Theodoric appears in the pages of contemporary writers as a sovereign whose habits and traditions were altogether Roman. The works of Enodius abound in evidence of this. His panegyric in particular, in which he represents Italy and Rome as loud in their praise of Theodoric because he had revived the old tradition and because he himself was a Roman prince whose ambition it was to place Italy in harmony with her past. This is the idea which dominates the pages of the famous Prosopopeia of the Adige. The government of Theodoric was then wholly Roman. He published laws and appointed consuls. He maintained and enforced Roman law, and the Edictum Theodorici was derived exclusively from Roman sources. He even imitated the imperial policy of encouraging barbarians in Italy, as when, for example, he established the Alemanni as guardians of the frontier. He also had a court, officials, and an administrative organization similar to that of Byzantium. He respected the Senate, restored the consular office, and though himself an Arian, intervened as arbitrator much as a Caesar would have done in the affairs of the church. Theodoric had a royal palace at Ravenna, and there held his court, Aula, surrounded by the chief men of Italy and his Gothic nobles. To enjoy interest at court was all important. No career was open to the man who did not attend there. He was unknown to his master, says Zenodius. The court was at once the home of good manners and the source of enlightenment, the center of state affairs, and a school of administration for the younger men. The court and the service of the Palatium entailed certain functions, nearly all of which were discharged by Romans. The comes rerum privatarum, Apronianus held the office in the time of Enodius, had charge of the privy purse, and in his double capacity of censor and magistrate was responsible for the preservation of tombs and the administration of private justice. The comes patrimoni, Julianus, as steward of the royal domains, had under his orders the troublesome band of farmers of the revenue, conductores, and inspectors, charlotari. He had moreover supreme charge of the royal commissariat. The palace, with its magnificent gardens and sumptuously decorated apartments, was thronged with Roman nobles who came there in search of preferment. It was guarded by picked troops, and Ravenna, 
was the headquarters of an important military district where the chief commands were filled by such men as Constantius, Agapitus, and Honoratus. There was not a Goth among them. If from the court we turn to the officials, we find again that they were all Romans. Among the ministers of the court of Theodoric, as would have been the case under the Roman administration, the most important was the Praetorian prefect Faustus, a personage of high consequence who, in right of his office, enjoyed a considerable police authority and extensive patronage. He was at the head of the postal administration, and to him was the final appeal in all criminal matters which arose in the provinces. His powers were almost legislative in character. In the forum his jurisdiction was supreme and his person sacred. The Comes Sacrarum Largitionum discharged the duties of finance minister, the Questor, Eugenides, was responsible in matters relating to jurisprudence and the framing of laws. Then came the Treasury Council, Marcellus, who filled a position coveted by the rising members of the bar, and who acted as a sort of attorney general with respect to the estates of interstates and unclaimed assets. Next came the Magister Officiorum, and then the Perequator, whose business it was to adjust the incidence of taxation in the royal cities. Finally, the Vicarius, the deputy in each diocese of the Praetorian Prefect. We have here only specified some of those officials whose personal character have been depicted for us in the letters of Enodius. If we complete, and with the help of Cassiodorus it is possible to do so, the catalogue of government departments, both administrative and provincial, which existed in Italy under Theodoric, we might well imagine it to be a record not of the reign of a barbarian king, but of the times of Valentinian and Honorius. It was the Romans alone who struggled, and they did so with the greatest eagerness to obtain these posts. Did, for example, the office of Treasury Council fall vacant, the whole province was agitated by intrigues, and even bishops joined in the contest. The crowd of candidates for a minor office, such as Perequator, was so great that Enodius could not refrain from bantering Faustus on the subject. The cursus honorum of the principal officers of state during the forty years from Odoacer to the death of Theodoric, proves that very little was altered in Italy during that period except the nationality of the ruler of the country. We find, for instance, that Faustus was successively consul, quaestor, patrician, and praetorian prefect, and was moreover entrusted with missions to Anastasius, while Liberius, who had remained faithful to Odoacer, and had even refused to surrender Cessna to Theodoric, was nevertheless employed by the latter sovereign, who made him a patrician and prefect of Ligurian Gaul. Cinerius, again, was employed first as a soldier, and then as a diplomat, and count of the patrimonium. Agapetus, another official, obtained the rank of patrician, held a military appointment at Ravenna, and was in turn consul, legate in the east, and prefect of the city, while Eugenides, whom Enodius styles the honor of Italy, became a vir illustris, and was employed as an advocate, a quaestor, and as master of the offices. Other examples might also be quoted. The readiness of these Italian noblemen to serve successively under both Odoacer and Theodoric arose from no feeling of indifference on their part, 
but must rather be attributed to the fact that these rulers were in no sense hostile to tradition, and because they continued the form of administration established by the Roman Empire. The Senate and the Consulate, those two institutions with which the whole history of the past had been so intimately connected, especially engaged the attention of Theodoric. Ever since the time of Honorius, the part played by the Senate in the government of Italy had been growing more and more important. After the death of Libius Severus, it had asked Leo for an emperor, while both Augustulus and Odoacer had entrusted it with a similar mission to Zeno. In a well-known novel, Majorian may be found thanking the Senate for his election and promising to govern according to its counsels. And when Anthemius was endeavoring to involve Ricimer in the struggle that was to end so fatally for himself, he lent for support upon the Curia. Examples such as these show that the Senate represented tradition. It was the single authority that remained unchanged through every vicissitude, and to it accordingly Theodoric at once made overtures. He entrusted a mission of considerable importance to two senators, Festus and Faustus, the former of whom occupied the position of chief of the Senate, and on making his entry into Rome, his first visit was to the Senate House. In fact, to make use of a saying of his own, as recorded by his panegyrist, he adorned the crown of the Senate with countless flowers. He enrolled a few Goths among its members, but he only did this on rare occasions, for he preferred, as a rule, to recruit the senatorial ranks from among the old aristocracy of the country. During his reign, men became senators in three ways. They might either be co-opted, or else selected from a list of candidates nominated by the king, or they obtained the rank because they had been advanced to some dignity which conferred the title of illustrious. In Rome, indeed, the Senate at this time was the supreme power. In conjunction with the prefect, it had the control of the municipal police, it organized the games in the circus, and exercised authority over the city schools and working men's corporations. Without abandoning any of its legislative power, it assumed the functions of the Aediles, nor could a royal edict become law until it had received the senatorial sanction. The Varia of Cassiodorus are full of letters from Theodoric to the Senate. Indeed, he never made a nomination of any consequence or filled up an important office without immediately communicating the fact to the senators in the most deferential terms, and even soliciting their advice and approbation. A great deal of this deference was no doubt a mere form, but to a certain extent it was also sincere. The king's respect could hardly have been altogether feigned, for he invariably addressed even those senators who held aloof from his government in a kindly manner. Festus, for instance, although he remained in Rome and never visited Ravenna, obtained the rank of patrician and received no less than four letters from Theodoric, all expressed in the most flattering terms. While Symmachus, another patrician who refused to leave his native city, was favored with a royal letter praising the buildings which he had erected. In spite of these friendly relations, some opposition was aroused in the Curia by the question of the Arian schism. Indeed, towards the end of the king's reign, the behavior of the senators over this matter even provoked against him the hostility of Byzantium. 
Not only was this opposition a source of serious trouble to Theodoric, but it rendered him suspicious and cruel and caused him to act with great severity against some of the senatorial families and several victims, among whom Boethius was the most illustrious, were executed by his command. In the opinion of Theodoric, the consulship was as valuable as ever, though in reality it had lost a great deal of its former importance. As Justinian justly observes in an Authenticus, this office had originally been created to defend the state in time of war, but since the emperors had undertaken the business of fighting, the consulship had deteriorated into a means of distributing largesse among the people. Under these circumstances, candidates for the office were not very numerous. Enodius mentions the small number of aspirants for the consulship, while Marcion, in an official communication, expresses his indignation at the stinginess of the men holding this high office and obliges them to contribute a hundred pounds weight of gold for the purpose of repairing the aqueducts. The consulship, indeed, at this period had degenerated into a mere name. A formula of nomination, which has been preserved for us by Cassiodorus, merely recalls the fame of this magistracy in the past, and then goes on to point out that a consul's sole duty is to be magnanimous and not to be sparing with his money. However, the consul has no more authority. By the grace of God, the formula declares, we govern while your name dates the year. Your good fortune, indeed, is greater than that of the prince himself, for though endowed with the highest honors, you have been relieved of the burden of power. On the other hand, as if to make up for this loss of authority, the dress of a consul was sumptuous and magnificent. A spreading cloak hung from his shoulders. He carried a scepter in his hand and wore gilded shoes. In addition, he possessed the right of sitting in a curule chair and was allowed to make the seven processions in triumph through Rome of which Justinian speaks in one of his novels. Theodoric would have liked to restore the consulship to a somewhat more respected position. An eloquent letter on the subject of this magistracy was addressed by him to the emperor Anastasius, and when Avienus, the son of Faustus, became consul in 501, Enodius, who shared the opinion of his master, wrote as follows. If there are any ancient dignities which deserve respect, if it to be remembered after death is to be regarded as a great happiness, if the foresight of our ancestors really created something so excellent that by it humanity can triumph over time, it is certainly the consulship, whose permanence has overcome old age and put an end to annihilation. In his panegyric, moreover, Enodius praises Theodoric, because, during his reign, the number of consuls exceeded the number of candidates for the office in previous times. The main outlines of Theodoric's government have now been described, and it will be seen that they were all of Roman origin. We must next inquire in what manner he administered this government. A judicious policy and gentle means had been employed to supplant Odoacer, and at the beginning of his reign he governed by similar methods. He endeavored to help the Italian officials with whom he had surrounded himself and to whom he had entrusted the high offices of state in their task of pacifying and reorganizing the country. When Epiphanius described the miserable plight of Liguria to him, told him in moving terms how the land there lay uncultivated, owing to its husbandmen, 
having been carried away captive by the Burgundians, the king replied, There is gold in the treasury, and we will pay their ransom, whatever it may be, either in money or by the sword. He then suggested that the bishop should himself undertake negotiations for ransoming the captives. Epiphanius accepted this mission, and, the king having placed the necessary funds at his disposal, triumphantly brought home 6,000 prisoners, whom he had either ransomed, or whose liberty he had obtained by his eloquent pleading in their behalf. The effect produced in Italy by such an act of liberality, followed by so satisfactory a result, can be imagined. The king's aim, indeed, as he told Cassiodorus, was to restore the old power of Italy, to re-establish a good government, and to extend the influence of that Roman civilitas upon which he desired to model his own administration. As ministers, he selected men capable of inspiring confidence, such as Liberius, for instance, whose official work had been attended with such excellent results. In his opinion, fidelity to a vanquished patron was a virtue, nor was he afraid of praising it. Indeed, in his administration, the value of a post given to a son would be in proportion to the deserts of the father. He attracted young men capable of making good officers of state to his court. In a word, he acted like a sovereign who desires to be loved by his subjects, and at the same time to give stability to his rule. As in odious remarks, no man was driven to despair of obtaining honors. No man, however obscure, had to complain of a refusal to his demands provided that they rested on substantial foundations. No man, in fact, ever came to the king without receiving liberal gifts. But at this point we detect the panegyrist. As we shall see before long, the end of his reign differed from the beginning, but during the chief part of it, at any rate, he governed with singular prudence. When Laurentius begged Theodoric to pardon some rebellious subjects, the king answered him as follows. Your duty as a bishop obliges you to urge me to listen to the claims of mercy, but the needs of an empire in the making shut out gentleness and pity and make punishments a necessity. Nevertheless, we find that he allowed some mitigation to be made in the punishment of the culprits. Theodoric could be a just as well as a politic ruler, and he showed his sense of justice when he had to deal with financial questions. At the request of Epiphanius, he remitted two-thirds of the taxes for the current year to the inhabitants of Liguria, levying the remaining third, it is said, in order that the poverty of his treasury might not impose fresh burdens on the Romans. During his reign, even the Goths were obliged to submit to taxation and he also made them respect the public finances. At Adria, for instance, he forced them to give back what they had taken from the fiscus. In Tuscany, he ordered Gesila, the Sagio, to make them pay the land tax. Moreover, if in any province the servant of the Gothic count or his deputy behaved violently to the provincials, we find Severianus giving information against them. While in Picenum and Samnium, we find him ordering his compatriots to bring grants made to the king to court, without keeping back any portion of them. Nevertheless, contemporary chroniclers have all declared that Theodoric, like Odoacer, distributed a third part of the land in Italy among his soldiers.
Their statement appears to have been almost invariably accepted by later historians, who have repeated it one from another. A theory that the barbarians despoiled the conquered people of their estates is commonly believed and indeed has hardly ever been contradicted. But in addition to the fact that such a proceeding would certainly have led to some disturbance, of which we can find no evidence in any part of the country, another circumstance renders such a conclusion unreasonable. This is that neither Odoacer soldiers nor Theodorics were in reality sufficiently numerous to occupy a third part of the land in Italy. Greek chronicles, it is true, speak of the Tritemorion ton agron, Latin writers of the Tertiae. But what are we to understand by these expressions? Among the few scholars who have attempted to dispute the current theory, some, like de Rosière, believe that the chronicler's words denote an act of confiscation for which compensation was made to the owners by a tax levied at the rate of one-third of the annual value. Others, like Lacrivain, consider that they mean a surrender of unappropriated land, in return for which a tribute was exacted equal to a third of the annual produce. At no period, not even during the agrarian troubles in the faraway days of the Republic, had it ever been the custom to eject legal proprietors from their estates. On the contrary, on every occasion when land had been required for the purpose of making grants to the plebeians, to veterans or praetorians, or even to barbarians, it had invariably been taken from land owned by the community, that is to say, from the land around the temples, from unoccupied land, or from the property of the treasury. Whenever indeed a distribution of land took place, it was made exclusively from the lands belonging to the treasury, which at certain periods multiplied exceedingly owing to the eschiated successions or confiscations. In our own opinion, it was a third of these state lands, this ager publicus, that was assigned to the barbarians during the reigns of Odoacer and Theodoric. In addition to the fact that not one of these texts actually contradicts this theory, it appears to be sufficiently proved by the following words addressed by Enodius to Liberius, when the latter was ordered to allot the land of Liguria to the Goths. Have you not enriched innumerable Goths with liberal grants, and yet the Romans hardly seem to know what you have been doing? Even the courtier-like Enodius would not have expressed himself in this manner in a private letter, or even in an official communication, if private estates had been attacked for the benefit of the conquerors. During the early years of the Roman Empire, the annual food supply of Italy had always been one of the government's chief anxieties. And the writings of Cassiodorus constantly show us that Theodoric was not free from a similar care. His orders to his officials, however, on this subject appear to have been attended with excellent results. During his reign, according to the Anonymous, 60 measures of wheat might be purchased for a solidus, and 30 amphorae of wine might be had for a like sum. Paul the deacon has remarked the joy with which the Romans received Theodoric's order for an annual distribution of 20,000 measures of grain among the people. It was, moreover, with a view to making the yearly food supply more secure that the king caused the seaports to be put in good repair. And we find him especially charging Sebeniacus to keep those in the vicinity of Rome in good order. End of section 53